Exciting contest down at Mercer, and in case uh, you did not get the memo, that uh, Monsanto cat's pretty good. ETSU football fans are mad at you for burying perhaps the lead. Signing day. Signing day. Third segment, we're going to talk signing day, but it can't be the lead when Demari Monsanto is doing what he's doing. I mean, what an absolutely incredible run that he is on. Got a couple stats for you. You know, I love my stats. During conference play amongst freshmen in the country, so. Freshman during conference play, sixth in the nation in points per game, second in the nation in rebounds per game, second in the nation in threes made amongst freshmen during league play, and of the top 20 in points amongst freshmen during league play, has the fewest turnovers of all of those players. And now, yes, you're going to say, okay, well, he's not exactly a guy that's going to handle the ball a lot, go up the dribble. He said, post game with you at Mercer after the 70 to 64. Buccaneer win, come from behind fashion, down eight at the half, that he's trying to diversify his offensive game, not just spotting outside the arc, taking a few dribbles, doing some different things, going to the glass. I thought the most impressive portion of the game was when the Bucks needed him most to seal the contest. It wasn't his scoring. It was everything else. Finds a decade on a beautiful pass down low, big basket. Then you wanted him to pull it back out after the offensive rebound. Second chance points makes it a two-possession game again. So really it wasn't what he's typically known for it was the pass it was yes he has rebounded well but I would say right now people think what a shooter you saw Angelo Lento from College Insider yesterday put out something that said he's one of the best freshmen in the country and pointed out his three-point shooting if that's how he's known that's great I hope people keep thinking that because he does so much more than that and it showed down the stretch no I I totally agree I think he made game-winning plays right and you know nobody's ever listen to me on basketball acumen anyways about what to do late game situations so why listen to me now so and it worked out to the win there are plenty of times i've yelled at uh, players to you know either not do something or do something and to their face or? oh lord no, oh, lord right no. Right. i'm a small man so i don't want to do that well large but small if you know what i mean compared to those guys i'm small so um i thought the past to a decade was was my favorite play of the game i take that back my favorite play of the game was the behind the back leave um from Sloan to Monsanto, which, by the way, Sloan only had one assist. I'm still trying to rack my brain, that, and I couldn't off the top of my head. I think he, Mercer does not hand out assists, and I realize that uh, Kevin Brown and his crew is like candy, like they, they give it, which is fine. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in favor of that. Like, let's reward things, right, instead of being a stickler for, 
you know, did a guy catch a pass and did he shoot it within like .2 seconds or did he jab step and then, shoot, you know, there's all kinds of – college isn't like the, – the NBA, there's a lot of things in pro sports I like that is better in college statistically and the way they do the assist in the NBA is to me much better um, than college. I, and I don't want to get into that diatribe. But my favorite play was actually that, the, the, the lead behind. It was the beauty of an assist that, if it was his only one. And, and Sloan not uh, – Sloan. Uh, yeah, Sloan with the assist and then Monsanto with three. The next favorite play, and I thought a game-changing play, was Monsanto with the lead for a decade because that was right where Mercer got it to three. I think they just missed a three. He, just, he was able to put them back up. Uh, two possessions go up by five points at that point. So I, that was uh, – and it showed awareness, right? They came to double-team him. He had been on fire. He knew somebody was open and, and got it to the big man who was able to finish. So I thought um, he played as – of a game as maybe he has played in his ETSU uniform at Mercer. Another double-double. Uh, I mean, it was just incredible to see what he did. And it was on a night where the Bucks needed it. Ladarius Brewer was good early, right? He was three for his first four, and what did he end up? I think three for eight, so he missed his last four shots. Wasn't that involved in the game, which is strange to see? Wasn't I, sure exactly what went on there. I, I'm just I'm going to say for the last two games, and I don't know if there's any correlation. But teams have guarded him at 94 feet, whether he had the ball or not. And I don't know if that is frustrating. I don't know if it's, you know, just a challenge. Obviously, teams are trying to take him away now. Um, so not. I don't know if it's that. I don't know. You know, it could be, you know, in all honesty, Mercer paid so much attention to him that they didn't pay a lot of attention to Monsanto. So I don't know. You know, is it him not being aggressive? Is it him being a good teammate? Is it him just worrying about winning? Is it, I mean, there's a lot of things you could kind of draw from. I'm going to see tomorrow if I can get to shoot around. I'm going to try to see if I can't maybe ask in a nice way because sometimes, you know, hey, double-digit single games guy, how's it going? <laughs> you talk, I don't know if that's necessarily the way you want to go about it, but still I'm kind of curious um, because he wasn't that aggressive and he made passes, but in the same token – you know, there was some high basketball IQ because Monsanto was on fire, and at times guys were looking for him. And I think that's the key. Last year, and I talked about this a lot last season, I maybe said once or twice, but last year's team, the basketball IQ of this guy is having his day, get him the ball, and nobody cared. It's taken the team a while on this team to figure that out. I think the, the last probably six, eight games I felt confident in saying, you know, maybe a possession here or two, but I feel pretty confident if somebody's doing well. If, if Sloan's had a couple of drives that have worked, then they've given him the ball to, to drive and do his thing. You know, obviously, if Ladarius is off to a hot start early, they've been able to give him the basketball and let him do his thing. I think now Monsanto's getting his. We've seen Ty Brewer. So I think the team is the only guy that, that maybe I think sometimes gets frozen out of that is a decade. But other than that, I think everyone is starting to recognize who's having a good one. So I don't know necessarily, you know, if it's the guarding, if it's everyone's doing so much to take him away, if he's truly, you know, maybe being too unselfish maybe because I think even if people are guarding him tightly, I'm okay with still 10 or 12 shots, you know, something like that. He got to eight one like he did. And to be honest with you, you know, he wasn't having a great second-half shooting. So – Maybe it's a situation where, okay, it's not my day. Let's let somebody go. I, I don't know. I, there's a lot to really 
figure out, and it's always tough to try to get in. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions I get from Don Hellman when I'm on his show is when he likes for me to get in somebody's psyche about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And sure. I'm trying to tell him I have no, I have no idea. Um, but my initial guess is that 94 feet of pressure, whether he has the ball or not, and the extra attention he is getting has made it tougher for him to try to find points. Another key stretch of the game. Mercer had kind of slowly built their lead in the second half back to seven. It was 55 to 48, and then Monsanto goes on a six-point run himself, essentially hit a, a conventional three. Silas Adeke had a basket there, too, but Monsanto and Adeke, you know, they get the next eight points, and all of a sudden it's uh, 57 to 55, and Adeke hits a free throw uh, after that. So it's 58 to 55. Mercer answers back with Leon Ayers. It's 58 to 57. And so Monsanto's gotten you there, right? Monsanto's gotten you back in the game. We know no one player, unless you have an otherworldly performance where you're dropping like 35 or 40 at the college level, which is just so rare to see. We know that you're not going to be able to carry a team all 40 minutes. So who is going to step up at that point? And yet again, it was David Sloan. Got into the paint, made a two, and then hit a three to put the Bucks up six. He was the one that kept that run going. And if you remember that Furman game, Jay, and I pointed out a number of times because I just think David Sloan has added a different dimension coming off the bench, accepted his role, and really been a difference maker for this team. It was 40-37 to 37, Furman, and who started the big run that pushed the Bucks over the top and put him in control in that game? It was David Sloan with a couple of back-to-back baskets. So he has been integral when ETSU has needed him in big games because, quite honestly, I thought going on the road, and I believe uh, the wise guys, as you call them, uh, thought the same. I think Mercer was favored in this game, which was a little bit alarming. Um, but it looked like the Bucks were going to have a battle on their hands, and they did. But in order to get to the finish line in that game, they needed someone aside from Mario Monsanto. Ladarius Brewer wasn't it. And so David Sloan stepped up. One thing on Mercer, because we do like to talk a lot of Southern Conference basketball in general, mostly in men's basketball stock report, but I think that it's worth bringing up here on this Friday edition of the show. Really, a, I think, a, a thing to keep an eye on, but also extremely concerning for Mercer, what is going on with Magic Bender's usage? Because the first 13 games of the year, he averaged nearly 20 points per game, and or 20 minutes per game, I should say, and 13 points per game. And... He's had just 11 minutes per game the past four and under five points per game in those same games. And I don't know if they like James Glisson third and Javon Tucker over him. If so, I would love to get in Greg Gary's head and figure out the reasoning behind that because Bender is a dynamic player that can do a lot of different things. And quite honestly, Glisson and Tucker, you saw him up close and personal. They're nice role players, but Bender is a special talent, and I thought that's what they were missing. I thought they were missing that other guy, pardon me, that could really get them to a point where they were in control throughout in the game that whole second half and could get to the finish line. When they didn't have him, when he was sitting there watching, because I think he only played like five minutes, it was trouble. And so without him going forward, I think Mercer has real cause for concern in looking at how they're going to be able to finish this conference season in seeding and what matchup they're going to get in the first round of the Southern Conference tournament. Yeah, you know, and he was the guy that killed ETSU last year, so I think that was maybe, you know, James Glisson, very athletic, uh, certainly can um, do some things offensively where he can go off the dribble, maybe not necessarily just back to the basket type guy. And it seemed like they were trying to do that early, and then 
Greg Gary called a timeout at the first meeting when ETSU, as a matter of fact, it ended on that three bub. We talked about the assist from Sloan to Monsanto, and he spent the whole time yelling at Glisten and Ayers, and it seemed like it checked those two guys out because neither one of them, I don't think, I can't even remember a play if Glisten made any play the rest of the game. Ayers had a great start, and then, like you said, he was pretty he, silent. He had 11 first half points, and then he hit a shot late. Um, hit a shot late, uh, drove to the hoop, got one to go, and so he finished with 13. He had 11 in the first half. It was really kind of carrying uh, the team. The other thing is I thought was alarming was Ross Cummings only had like three shots first half and no points. And, you know, again, I think some of that's ETSU's defense. They were doing some things. But still, if you're Ross Cummings, I think you need more shots. I mean, he's leading the team in scoring, doing some other things. And then I think when they finally got – Mercer got something going was when they got – just cut Alvarez loose. And then he was able to drive and then really kind of break down the defense. And then we started to see more open shots from Mercer. But early, a lot of that motion offense, a lot of the things where really Greg Gary's offense isn't predicated. On, it's sort of similar to the Eastchester's offense when Sloan isn't in the game. It is a little bit of two different offenses, I think. I think, you know, there's a little more motion concepts and stuff when Sloan is out of the game. I think when Sloan's in the game, you see either play call or pick and roll because, honestly, Sloan is good at distributing the basketball that way. I think that's his strength. I think Coach Shea has sort of figured that out. Like, I, I can put him in the best spot by doing this. And so it's it was curious because there's so much legitimate talent. It's it's baffling Mercer and Western. When you look at the roster and you take their players player by player, separately not as a team, it's, and you look at the list and you're going, man, that's a solid seven or eight, maybe even nine in Mercer's case. But you're, it's a solid group they got to be winning. And then you look at Western, and they've, they've laid some eggs. I'll give you that. But Mercer's been in a lot of games. Yeah. And this is, you know, an amazing – you know, they were 8-1 when they had led. So they've been good front runners. And so gave up an eight-point lead early in the second half. But then they went back to an eight-point lead, and I thought, oh, man, here we go. Like, you know, because Cummings had started to hit a three. All of a sudden, uh, I think uh, uh, Gary had hit a three. Then Cummings hit a second three. And then all of a sudden – the three ball starts dropping. I'm going, oh, geez, they had three out of four threes in the second half. And I'm thinking, man, it's going to get ugly. And then they just stop missing, and there's no, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's, and then Hase, again, it's similar. And I know it, it costs each issue with Wofford. There's just something about me watching a 6'10 guy that just only wants to stand up there and shoot threes. I mean, it's just, and then Mercer, I thought, did a horrific job. This would be the only true criticism. Coach Gary was his team never got the ball inside when they had a distinct mismatch with Hasi, with Bender, with Glisson, when Sorrell Smith, when David Sloan, Truth Harris one time's down there. I mean, they just did not get the ball inside when they had a you know, a post player, you know, ranging from six seven to seven foot on a guy that's six one, six foot. And I, I, I don't you know, again, I know he knows a lot more about basketball than I do, but it was confusing to me during the broadcast. It's still confusing to me now that they weren't able to figure that out. Bender is 6'11", 255, and is that post guy where it seems like they like to throw it into him, shooting 64% from the floor. So that would be another where if he was out there more often, got to get him the ball down there. And as you said, there's no real interest in doing that. A good team does not lose that game of eight and a half. And you and me sat here and made excuse after excuse after excuse for the Bears going into the contest. I, I mean – we were finding every which way to turn them from a 3-5 and five team to an 8-0 eight eight team. Eight baby. But a good team.
team does not lose that game. And so I'm a little bit off the Mercer bandwagon now, uh, considering what we saw. And, and I like Alvarez and Ayers. Cummings, we know, is a proven player, did not have a good game against the Bucs. Um, Hase is kind of off. Bender just didn't play. And so I'm just not sold on Mercer after that game. Now it's four losses in the league by six or less. And I get those games can go either way, but that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me with Greg Gary's squad because, as you said, so, so, so talented. But the personnel decisions with Bender, maybe he's battling an injury. That would make some more sense. Um, but that along with the fact that it just seems like there's some confusion on the offensive end about who should be doing what, where the touches should be going. And that can happen with teams that do have a lot of talent. And maybe that is what's going on with Mercer and Western Carolina because, as you said, Coming into the year, I certainly would have put them in the top three or four in the league in terms of most talent on the squad. Yeah, it, you know, I didn't really, until you even mentioned it, I didn't even realize Bender played five minutes. And I, I don't know, the identity of Mercer would seem to be, to me, when you look at the roster, to be sort of an inside out because if they could get Bender, they get Hase, they get Bliss, and they get a few guys going. You know, then, or opposite, you know, you could go outside in because they have so many great shooters. They score at will, and when they – the few times they haven't been able to score, they've sort of been ran out of the building. Now, because they had a halftime lead, ETSU wasn't able to run them out of the building. But, you know, Alvarez doesn't seem like – you know, I, I saw a couple games where he had technical fouls. I thought maybe head case to me didn't look like he was very in control. I thought, again, guys knew – David Sloan has got a few technicals on his side, and I felt like he got baited. I think people are baiting Sloan. I think Sloan has figured it out because he's walked away. He's chirped now. Sloan did have the emotional outburst after the three, in which I don't think uh, after the game he sort of told me that, like, you know, I didn't realize how loud I yelled. But, like, I was just excited. I yelled. I didn't realize empty building. That just happened to be there. And then, of course, the baseball teams weren't him out. But the funny thing is, and I said it on air, Sloan's one guy accepts that. You're absolutely Like, he enjoys – when the other team has it. And there are there are more people, I think, enjoy it than the few that kind of cower to it. But there are plenty of people. I, I used uh, a long time ago, I asked uh, one of our ETSU guys who used to talk trash a lot, and I was like, why do you, you like, so over the – he was like, because – and I won't name him, but he was like, because this guy and this guy, if they start yelling at them, they just – they shut down. He said they can't handle it. So I've got to get – more of a role. I've got to get the attention on me. I've got to get people yelling at me. I'm fine with it. I'm okay with it. So, you know, if I'm the bad guy, it doesn't bother me. But these guys are just, you know, a little sensitive. And if, you know, they get yelled at or missed or they get heckled a lot, they're either going to yell back and get out of their game because they're concerned about yelling back, or the other guy, it affects them just like literally like he's just a little soft in that area. So, again, I won't name any, but I found it interesting. I think I don't think Sloan is taking up for anybody. I just think he's the type of guy that's like, you know what, I'm going to play a little harder because you are talking to me because you are going to do this. I'm a little focused. And, you know, there was one time early in the season I said I, I kind of felt like he, he bumped somebody to get bumped back just so, you know, he could get going. You know, it was one of those things. So the Mercer Bears are confusing to me. And, you know, to, to be at three and six, I mean, more confusing is Western's one and eight. But top of the standings are, are also a jumble. Um, and then Western, I thought, got a win. They're going to return to corner. Chattanooga hasn't played in 11 days. Great opportunity to come off a win. And then you got Western Carolina, West Carolina. Like, it, it was tie ball game, and then they fell down double digits, and then it was like, okay, we'll just kind of 
coast the rest of the contest. So, and Chattanooga was missing a few players. You know, they only only played six, really. Yeah, well, and they they had ten um, travel, so they were missing um, a couple of scholarship guys. They were missing uh, the walk-on. So there were a few. I think um, uh, Josh Ioni, who had started in every single game, missed that game as well. So they had Josh Ioni missed it, and then I think another guy that, that played a lot. Or, yeah, Jaden Frazier. He was out, too. So, Jaden Frazier, uh, Josh Ina, and then uh, uh, I think they missed uh, Tostada, right? Yeah, yeah, Alex Tostada. So, but he's playing like a game. But they still, you know, they went there with 10 guys instead of 13. And so, they were a little shorthanded, missed a starter, and still was able to come away from a win. So, the amazing stat I'll give you, and I gave this to Mike Gallagher yesterday, of the 11 Division One wins that Chattanooga has, they have trailed in the second half at some point in all 11 games. And so... It is an incredible stat. I thought ETSU's trailing in eight of the 11 Division uh, Well, not Division one, one, just eight wins. ET, uh, 11 wins, excuse me. ETSU's 11 wins, they have trailed in eight of the 11. And I didn't go back to check Division one wise because obviously they didn't trail against Columbia International. I'm trying to remember, I don't think they trailed in the second half to Lee. It was tight, but I don't remember them trailing the second half. So, out of the Division One games, then I think ETSU is 8 of 9 trailing in the second half. So, apparently, whoever leads at halftime isn't a lot of trouble. It's the one game I, I feel pretty confident. Unless you're up 20. Unless somebody is up 20, then I don't feel real good about whoever has the halftime lead. And the other team obviously clearly doesn't panic if they go in a locker room down three or four. This is another team extremely talented. Like look, look up and down the list. David G. Baptiste, Malachi Smith, Stefan Kenich, and Trey Dooms opted out. So he played nine games. He's done for the season. He opted out after those nine games. And he was doing a lot for the mocks. They traded him out for Darius Banks. And I like to think we cover the SOCOM pretty well. We've done it in Stock Report over the last month and a half or so where we've dove deep into every team and their roster and personnel, who's in, who's out, that kind of thing. Guy we missed. Darius Banks, and we missed him because when the blanket waiver came in, what, 17th of December, third week, whatever it was, of December, a lot of guys started playing, right? I think Corey Hightower comes to mind uh, for Western Carolina instantly, and there's a number of others around the league, uh, Casey Hankton, right, for Chattanooga. Um, Darius Banks didn't start playing until second semester, and you look at his pedigree and where he's come from and what he's able to do, and this is a guy that if you trade out dooms for him, you're totally fine if you're Chattanooga. Uh, now, the chemistry piece is what I think has really hurt them this year, but Banks, three-year starter at JMU, 1,000-point scorer, uh, 54 double-figure scoring games, um, set an all-time mark for three-point percentage for James Madison in the season. I mean, he can do a lot of things. Only start playing the 13th of January. He's averaging 14 points per game. Proven quality talent. You've got Stefan Kenich, as we mentioned, who's started all 18 games. Caldwell is their main guy off the bench right now, and then Ieni, too. I think chemistry, you know, just follow the train here for David Jean Baptiste. Played five games, they're five and oh. Goes into the portal for four games. They win all four of those. Nine and comes back as a reserve, as a sub, and I think they went one and three. And then back into the starting lineup. And this is all in the span of two months. I mean, well, really, six weeks, and then now he's been in the starting lineup since he went back into the starting lineup. Um, I just think it's really hard. And then you have Dooms opt out and Banks come in. We talk about, and Hankton then, of course, came in as a blanket waiver, too. It, you have teams like ETSU where, yes, you have a lot of new bodies this year, right? But 
but since he have started playing November 25th against Abilene Christian, largely you've had all the same guys. Yes, you missed a couple of guys because of COVID. They weren't um, huge players. You did miss Ladarius, you know, one game because of COVID. That was obviously a big loss, um, and it, it hurt you uh, because you went on the road to Furman um, and weren't able to get the job done, and you know, no one blames you for that. But everybody's been in place 95% of the time, where Chattanooga has had guys literally on and off the roster almost the entire season, and that's where I think the chemistry piece has hurt them, because how do you develop a pecking order? How do you develop, you know, who's going to take the shot late in games? And they've been in every game, essentially. Every win has been tight. Every loss has really been tight. I think they've got, like, 15 games separated by single digits or something like that. Um, so that, I think, is what has hurt the mocks, and that's what's brought their talent to the point that it is, which I think also is largely the case for Western Carolina and Mercer. The turnover, I, I think it's interesting to see Lamont Paris because, you know, ETSU kind of came what the old Chattanooga used to be, what it was built on, you know, transfers, JUCOs, everything. It was, uh, you know, it was a joke back in the day. Mac McCarthy was, was sort of like the Los Angeles Raiders where it felt like all the cast-offs went and then he could figure out how to get them to play. And, again, I'm going back to the mid-'80s all the way to Max run in the you know, late-'90s or whatever. So, and, and it kind of felt that way. And then you get, you know, well, Wade had some transfers. Matt McCall had some transfers. And Lamont Paris comes in. He comes from Wisconsin, right, all that background. And in the Big Ten, right, at the major schools, you don't get a lot of transfers, right, because you can get top talent. You can get guys. And so I think Coach Paris was building like Wisconsin and trying to get freshmen and develop and whatever. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years, getting ran out of the building and, couple years of, oh, my goodness, all these teams. And then, you know, Steve Forbes didn't invent the transfer in Southern Conference. I mean, technically, Chattanooga was the first one to do it. They just went away from it. And then ETSU took advantage of figuring out how to make it work for them. And, again, looking at it, it's a good mix this year because you look at, obviously, the Darius Brewer transfer. they got Ty Brewer and Logan Sloan. But then you also have recruited Demari Monsanto. So there, there's, some, there's some mix in there. Now you look at the roster, and it looks to me more like a Chattanooga roster. All right, transfer – South Alabama, transfer St. Louis, transfer James Madison, transfer Maryland, transfer Sam Houston. Sam Houston, sorry, not Sam Houston. That's a new school. Western Sam Virginia, Houston. South Alabama, right state. No, the grad transfer. So, I mean, it, it just, you go down the list, and now it's looking like a Chattanooga Ross. But the other thing is Lamont Paris, I credit to him, figured out he would love to build. And I think at some point, I think that would be the game plan. If you know you're going to be there a long time, then you can bring in some of the transfers, get it rolling to get some freshmen in to get them going. So then maybe it's a one or two transfer as opposed to nine or ten that's on the roster now. I think that's where you'll see Chattanooga and Lamont Paris eventually get to. We've seen so far in Jason Shea's recruiting classes. Now, again, it's a little different. He's already got one freshman that's played in a couple of games. has been on campus for like a week. He's got two guys signed already. I think it was, I saw a couple more freshmen commit. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, A, all who stays, who goes, and how all that shakes out because it's a free year and all that good fun stuff. But it'll be interesting to see if Coach Shea is able to do what I think it looks like he's trying to do, which is use some of the transfers, build some of the freshmen, and supplement one or two. Now, Coach Forbes always talked to me about he was trying to get freshmen. He just kept missing out on what he called higher caliber freshmen that kept choosing somewhere else, and he wasn't going to take somebody there. Greg Hires had a great relationship. I think this is where 
ETSU has a slight advantage for a couple of years. Greg Howard takes his relationships that he had where he was at LSU and guys that he was recruiting that ends up that they weren't quite good enough for LSU, but they have a relationship with him. He's been getting them to commit to ETSU. Richard Moffley would be one of them. I think he knew Marcus Nyblack uh, clearly because his ties to Ole Miss. You look at some of the freshmen and some of the towns that, you know, Kansas City. I don't know if ETSU's ever had some name Kansas City before. Some other towns. So it, it, just interesting to see sort of the reach. It doesn't shock me, too, that, you know, with um, uh, St. Adrian Hall being in, in Texas, that's right next door to Louisiana, which clearly Greg Hire's probably been in the state of Texas quite a bit. So it's interesting to see sort of the roster makeup. That being said, Chattanooga has to get over the hump. You look at David Jean Baptiste, he's one of those cats that, like, early in his career, they beat ETSU. Late in his career, they have not. And he's had a couple games been competitive. A couple games have been blown out. He would like to, to get over that hump. You know, A.J. Caldwell's been there for a couple years now. He's not beating ETSU. But there's a lot of guys that have no idea. Um, and there's a lot of guys in ETSU. So this will be a game where me and the fans mark out on. And for the players, it's probably just another game. Now, I don't think, you know, there's so many new guys for Chattanooga. They haven't played in a meaningful game against ETSU. For ETSU, you know, it's just, honestly, the players are more concerned about UNCG and Wofford. Furman, not as concerned. So this will be a game that I'll go crazy for. It'll be the end of the world for me no matter what happens. But for both players and, and both coaches, this this is truly just another game because you have to play some important. The ETSU getting back in a league wasn't that important to Chattanooga early because they kept beating ETSU, and they beat them in championship game, and then they beat them a couple times the next year. Then all of a sudden ETSU started beating Chat, and then you could see you know, there's a little chippiness. There's a little bit of here. There's a little bit of there. I don't think Football's had it, you know, and because, again, they've been similar in where they're at. Basketball, really, it's just been another game, and it's going to be another game for these guys because there's so many new faces. The last time they beat ETSU, as a matter of fact, was that 2016 title game, and and you mentioned that Lamont Paris is trying to build. I I mean, Chattanooga could use some stability, right, because it was Will Wade for two years, Matt McCall for two years. Now Lamont Paris is in his fourth year, and to his credit, they've improved year after year after year, and what's particularly concerning, I know I just said, well, the chemistry is really hurt Chattanooga. Here's the exact stat. Four of their five league losses have come by single digits. Remember, they were undefeated in the non-conference, so four of their five league losses are four of their five losses this year. Three of those by five or less. All of their Division One wins this year have come by ten or less. So essentially every game outside of that, you remember the Wofford game where they were beaten pretty handily, 77-59, to 59, have been one-score games. What's concerning is that they go on the road, and they have been really good this year. There are a couple of good road wins on their resume. Look back to Bellarmine. I know that's first year Division One. I think they've won like six in a row. And they're like 10-5. and five. They're having a great year. UAB. We know that Andy Kennedy's team, last time I checked, they were on top of the league. That was a good two or three weeks ago. So I'm not sure what's happened since, but that's a solid squad. Remember, they came to ETSU and beat the Bucks in Freedom Hall narrowly. Um, so they've gone from 1-14 on the road in his first year, 4-11 to 7-8. Now they're 7-2. and two. They've already tied for their most road wins under Lamont Paris, and still got like four or five road games to go. So this is not going to be an easy task, and especially because this is another team that generally is not going to beat themselves. They make their free throws at a ridiculous clip, almost 80% from the line this year, and they don't turn it over. 12 turnovers per game, least in the Southern Conference. And I know you found a stat that was very interesting with turnovers regarding Chattanooga. It was something like they have turned it over less than their opponent in a certain amount of games. Well, they lost all those games or something like so that. So they, they have under 10 turnovers six times this year. 
and they're two and four. Two and four. Two I mean, and four in, in the games that they actually take care of the basketball. Makes no guys. sense. It makes no sense. So this is not going to be easy. I, we talk about the chemistry. We talk about the guys that are in and out of the lineup and the starting lineup combinations and guys opting out and other people being cleared because of the blanket waiver and second semester debuts and such. But this is a talented team. It is a team that, regardless of who has been on the floor, does things well and the things you need to do well in order to win generally, like not be yourself, kind of like a poor man's Wofford, right? Like they're not going to be the, they're going to be disciplined. They're probably not going to do anything spectacular, but they're not going to hand you the game. So I do expect this to be competitive. That being said, um, you'd like to say death taxes and being Western Carolina. Lately it's been that same thing for Chattanooga because it's ten in a row since they beat the Bucks in the Sunday title. Just want to, because uh, I don't want to yada yada, but um, Malachi Smith also, we talked about how great a double-double machine Hayden Brown was. Well, leading the league in double-doubles is Malachi Smith. And, you know, again, looking back at that roster, there are some seniors, but some key pieces like Malachi Smith is just a redshirt sophomore that if he stays, he's got a few more years to go. So I'm, I'm most intrigued to take a look at how the team plays, but I've, I'm really kind of excited to see, because um, I've seen David Jean Baptiste play a lot. I want to see how Banks plays, and I want to see how Malachi Smith plays. And can it just because he's got a little bit of time in the league now? I'm excited for that. And, and apparently he's, he's figured out a shot more and getting more looks, so that helps too. All right, that's men's basketball. Take a look at women's basketball. They are back in action actually tonight against Furman and Sunday. We'll talk about that after this timeout. Santa Sidekick, Buccaneer Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, We've changed our name to Brightridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Brightridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Basketball. I'm sure they're chomping at the bit. Although, still going to probably be without a couple of players. Is that, is that, we, can we talk about that, or we're not supposed to well, talk about that? Well, more than yet? a couple. We can't talk about specifics, just in case there happen to be a Furman fan that's sure. listening that cared enough to go and leak different information. Bunch of cheaters. <laughs> I just, I don't want to go there and risk it, even though. All right, so we know inside information that you'll figure out tonight. How about that? Yes. And, and and there is a shot that one or two could could be back by Sunday. Correct? Uh, no. No, none are back. Okay. All right, so we, I had that incorrect. It's going to be a lot uh, next week with Mercer. There should be a number of players that return, which will be helpful because Mercer is very powerful, as we know. Though, you mentioned it to me between segments here. There was a game last night between Western and Mercer, and keep in mind, Western Carolina, for the longest time, has kind of been the basement dweller in the Southern Conference, and Kylie Hill's trying to turn that around, and he's done a good job this year. I think it was a 12-point lead for Western going 14. into the fourth. 14. That, well, it, it, going into the fourth, you're correct, but they scored the first bucket. Oh. They were up 14. Took overtime for Mercer to come back and beat them. They were up a lot. Oh, no, this is great. I'm just looking to play with play. Li- this is live, uh, exciting podcasting here. Plus 11 with 441 to go. Oh. Plus 5 with 154 to go. 
finally the game gets tied at one uh, with a minute 11 and nobody scored and nobody scored the last 111 of the game to go to overtime oh West Co- so he'll coach Hill I mean let, let's again just like I think and I know uh Mike's going to crush me here. Just like I think Dan Earl's probably the best coach in men's on the turnaround right now. Coach Hill, is there any doubt right now women's basketball? I mean, who – I mean – Oh, you're right. It, all they got to do is win a couple more games. I know people still like, God, I can't believe you're bragging about somebody getting four wins. I'm like, have you looked at the last 12 years? It's incredible. Anyway. And it's learning how to win, right? You talk about that a Absolutely. lot with different teams. Like Western up by 14 with nine minutes left. A game you have to win if you're going to not be in that bottom three and – Maybe Kylie Hill's team is just not quite there yet to have that killer instinct and seal the deal. Anyway, Furman is the opponent, so we're skipping ahead, right, because it's, it's Mercer next week where the Bucks will be back at not full strength, but it sounds like, and fingers crossed, mostly full strength. They'll be getting there. Um, but against Furman this weekend, Friday, Sunday, 7 o'clock tonight, uh, 2 o'clock, Buccaneer Sports Network broadcast, 1.30 pregame on Sunday. Do not have tonight's game, but you can catch that on ESPN+. Plus. Um, they're going to be shorthanded and in a big, big way, and they just got out of quarantine on Wednesday. And so the turnaround, and I was at practice on Wednesday, it was a lot for Brittany Azell and her team of just, let's get back into the rhythm, um, kind of baby step your way back into practice and not even worrying about game plan stuff, anything like that. It's just, let's run up and down the floor, right? Let's get some shots up. I mean, that's what you have to do when you've had to stay in your house for more than a week in the middle of the season. It's a monumental task to go on the road and face anybody in the Southern Conference right now. And, and truly, right now, Furman is, quote-unquote, anybody, right? Because they have not been standout this year. They have been largely forgettable this season. And the big question for them going into the season was, what are they going to do in the backcourt? Uh, Milika Manolovich, uh, Taylor Petty, remember Lydia Davidson? She was an extremely solid player for Furman. Those three played a combined 100 minutes per game last year. All of them gone. On top of that, They've had injuries in the backcourt for the players that were back and came in. Their top two point guards, Tria Outen and Periskevi Koilia, uh, playing just 16 combined games, five for Outen and 11 for Koilia. So without their two point guards, uh, it's been a struggle with turnovers. They're bottom 50 in the country at nearly 20 per game. Great chance, I think, for ETSU's press to work their magic in a normal situation but when you're down to the amount of players that ETSU is, and I'll just say this, it's going to be less than 10. You're not going to have a full five to be able to bring in. When you're down to the amount of players that ETSU is, that's going to hinder your press. I don't know how much you can do that, right, because you need players fresh going to the fourth quarter. I mean, you can press for the first half and be up by 10, and then if everybody's gas coming out in the second half, what have you done? You've ran yourself right out of the game. So it's going to be an interesting balancing act for Coach Zell and not one I'm sure she's happy to have to face again. But, hey, she's got experience doing this. The last couple of years they've had a lot of injuries themselves. I was kind of trying to find a trend, and, and I can't because Jackie Carson's team, and every year, and I've said this, and, again, I, you, you won't give me to say anything bad about Jackie. I wish her play as a player. It's one of the few women's coaches I've known she for a while. She is Furman women's basketball. I it, mean, through it, and through. You look at the great Hall of Fame career she had there. You look at coaching. They just always seem to be somewhere in the middle. And so I'm wondering where it's going to autocorrect because look at the beginning of the year, they lose at Wofford. Then they lose a, a double-digit game to Chat. Then they beat Chat at Chat. And you're going, oh, that's a home game, I'm sorry. But they beat Chat. Then they go four on the road. You know it's going to be tough. It's Mercer, Sanford. And game one, they're in there by three. They're in there by six. And then they get blown out the, the second game. So I can't. It's hard to say. They certainly have struggled on the road. You could say that about a lot of teams. 
can't figure her team out. Last year, I couldn't figure out how Selena Taborn just was, like, disappearing as the season went, and so far still in the lineup. And so – but she's only averaging six points. She's regressed since her freshman year. You look at the uh, the number of shots taken and uh, in the regret as well. Like, she's just not getting shots. I mean, she's the fourth – leading shot taker of the group. She's still shooting close to 50%, 60% free throw shooter. I mean, I just – I would have had her pegged by now to be maybe the odds-on player of the year because I just don't think anybody can match up against her from what we saw early. And, again, just doing projections on what I thought she could be. That being said, you have to control Hodges, right? I mean, she's going to take an absurd amount of shots. Um, she leads the team in scoring, leads the team in steals is nowhere near an assist because the ball dies in her hands when it goes, so you know pretty much she gets the ball, leads the team in turnovers. So, great free throw shooter, averaging a double-double. You know, when Hodges gets the ball, it's going to be a shot. How can the Bucks try to at least slow her down or at least make her uncomfortable taking shots, right? Or at least and get it out of her hands great. It seems to be very difficult to do, that the shot is going to go up when it hits her hands, but to me, um, I, I think it just is as simple as can they somewhat contain Hodges and live with whatever happens with the rest. You know, I, this first game for me is going to be more about ETSU than Furman. And I just say that because of all the things you said. Coming back, we're trying to get going. Haven't worked on that. You know, uh, yes, I agree scouting is big. Scouting can do whatever. But if you can't do some of the fundamental things that you need to do on your end, plus depending on what lineups are out there, if they I, to me, game one is about ETSU, and then to me, then you're okay. Then they played, they've seen adjustments. You can try to figure out game two. For whatever reason, it seems like Furman, other than the home game against Chat, has struggled the second game. So maybe ETSU has advantage second game. But this first game, to me, is number one about ETSU. Number two about trying to contain Hodges. I 100% agree. A little bit more on Taborn before we go there. You're absolutely right. 12.6 rebounds per game her freshman year. Shot 61% from the floor. It's been kind of a slow burn since then, right? The second year she didn't progress, but she didn't move backwards. Pretty much the same season that she had in her first year. 12 points, 5.5 rebounds per game, 64% from the floor. So efficiency was even a little bit up, and she had right around 240 field goal attempts, so about 8 per game in each of those years. And then you started to see the rebounding fall off and the opportunities on the offensive end. It went down to about five shots per game and four rebounds per game and slipped below double digits in points at nine per game. And now this year, it's truly just kind of come apart at the seams. She shot 60% or above each of her first three seasons, 48% this season from the floor. She's only taking, you know, again, about five shots per game, rebounding right around where it was last year, four per game, but just six points per game. I really, it is mystifying. I'm not sure what's happened because she looked like she was going to be not only an all-league player, but really had a chance to be Southern Conference Player of the Year uh, a couple of times along the way for Furman. And if she was able to do that, I think those middling years that you've talked about, I think Jackie Carson went 7-7 seven and seven four years in a row, and then I think was 8-6 and six and then 9-5 and five last year, if memory serves. Um, just kind of had those middling seasons. If Taborn would have progressed, I mean, you're talking about some Southern Conference championships. So she has held the keys to a lot of what Furman has been or not been over the last couple of years. You're right, all about Hodges, no question. Uh, and she is the exact type of player, I hate to belabor the point as I always do, but this redshirt senior, you know, 5'9", athletic, is going to be able to um, do a lot of different things. You know, she can shoot the three now. 
39% from outside. She's her best three-point shooter. Um, she shoots 49% from the floor. If I'm Furman, I'm totally comfortable with her taking all the shots that she wants, and she is, you know, averaging right around 13, 14 per game. Um, but then, you know, in addition to being able, to, being able to shoot the three and having the ball in her hands a lot, she goes and rebounds. You know, Ten rebounds per game, top of the Southern Conference. She's, oh, used to like to say, a walking double-double. That's exactly what Tierra Hodges is. So she's going to get hers, um, especially against the Bucks. you know, just the type of player that dominates. Um, what ETSU needs to make sure of is that Sydney James, Walters, Selena Tabor, and Taya Hunter, those complimentary pieces, um, don't kill you. Because Hodges, you know, while we say she'll be able to do whatever she wants, and she's probably, you know, topping out at what, 25, 27 points. Um, if you can hold everybody else down, and, and Sanford did this well, and that second day in that loss that Furman kind of got blown out in to Sanford, Walters and James were the top two scorers behind Hodges, combined three for 25. I would take that approach if I'm Brittany Azell and company, and again, say sitting here, especially when, you know, you've got the players that Coach Zell does usually, that's a great game plan. Game planning anything right now with the squad that she has is going to be difficult, but that's what I would try to do. Um, Walters is a good distributor. She had 12 assists to two turnovers in that game. She's someone that shows a little bit of an ability to be a floor general and distributor, um, but turnovers have been a problem, uh, and if those two don't shoot the ball well and you leave it to just Hodges and then Tabor, who's going to be on the floor, you know, 15, 16 minutes per game. Um, Taya Hunter, who, uh, you know, is not that gifted scorer. Um, it's going to be very difficult for Furman uh, if they don't have James or Walter. So I think there's a path to success here this weekend despite being shorthanded. And if ETSU can accomplish that, momentum building wins, then you get some of your players back going into that Mercer series. It would truly be um, coming off a of quarantine. I, really impressive and I think rare story to be able to go and pull off road successes in this fashion against Furman, um, especially for a team that, while they've struggled with injuries themselves, are a pretty talented squad led by two men. So again, Friday, no broadcast tonight. Uh, we will have Sunday's contest for you, 2 o'clock tip, 1.30 pregame show here on the Buccaneer Sports Network. And no makeup dates yet set for the two Western Carolina games, but hopefully next uh, week or so we'll have that. It looks like they're going to be able to get those games worked out, so we'll be able to get those home games back in Brooks Gym for Coach Ezell. When we come back, the 2021 signing day. Woo! Since Mike forgot it in the intro, we'll talk about that after this timeout. Sam and Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Enjoy the new year with more games, more chances to win, and even more fun from the Tennessee Lottery. And you can play any way you like. Play quick and win big with instant games. Or try drawing-style games that pack a big money punch. So don't drop the ball. Make a resolution to put a little more cash and a whole lot of fun in your pocket today with the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Great job. Signing day for the first time ever will it started Wednesday. It will go on through August first. Can't cover it all, Anthony. 
and a new and a new thing. So should we do a six month show where we never go off the air covering signing? Uh, I mean, I think there are fans that would be fine with that. I I think you know our work would be unhappy with it because eventually we have to go do a game at some point. I'm assuming. But yeah. I mean, maybe. I mean, I'd rather just talk on a podcast. Heck with a game. That way we can be more opinionated, right? Yeah, same here. Okay. Um, in the fall, if you remember, Charlie Cole, the local product out of Daniel Boone, had signed. Tammy Dorsey, the uh, transfer from Landing College for junior college, six uh, foot two ninety. By the way, Charlie Cole, six two two twenty five, which I think was his Daniel Boone weight. I saw him the other day. I think they are uh, trying to trim him up a little. I think that uh, Randy Sanders alluded to it on his little video he did about signing day. I think he put it at about 250, Yeah, they want him down to 235, and uh, they've got him, uh, you know, healthy uh, nose tackle just about. If he gains 10 more pounds, he's going to have to go to the other side of the ball. Austin Lewis, I think people are excited about, uh, played at Liberty, transferred but originally David Crockett High School, 6'6", 270. He is, you know, probably going to be – he can't play this spring because of he played at Liberty. And if you played in the fall – a full schedule in the fall, not the couple games like the Citadel and some of the other SoCon schools did. But if you played a full fall season, then you were ineligible to play in the spring. So Austin Lewis uh, not going to be able to play, but he's going to take this year's player spot. And at 6'6", 270, and been in the weight room at an FBS school, he certainly looks the part. Juwan Ross, now he's the interesting one because he was at Old Dominion. They opted out, Old Dominion did, in the fall. So he can play in the spring. So he's a defensive lineman, 6'2", 265. No shock, and I'll just – start there before we keep going. Three of the first four guys that were able to ink in the fall, and technically Juwan Ross and Austin Lewis weren't allowed to be released because they transferred in and had to wait to the first day of classes, but they were here sort of at the end of the semester last year. They've been on campus. But three of the first four you look at, defensive linemen, certainly an area you tissue had to address. This year doesn't count as a year of eligibility. We have a really small senior class to start with. I knew it was going to be a small, sunny class, but with everyone getting a year of eligibility back and uh, kind of the way uh, COVID has happened and the way the recruiting calendar is now and the way things have changed, it probably turned into a little bit smaller signing day than uh, I anticipated probably a month ago. Really, I thought probably a month ago we'd be signing eight or ten a day. We'll probably have another one or two here in the next uh, few days, and there, there may be as many as another – six to ten between now and August 1st. They've opened it up. You can basically sign anybody, everybody, whatever, each day all the way up until August 1st now. So it's, it's a little bit different recruiting calendar. There's not the sense of urgency to get it done today. and It's not as um, uh, definitive that it really has to be done today. I'll talk individuals with you in a second, but that's just Coach Sanders talking about why the class is the size that it is. And you look around the Southern Conference, and there's a number of others that went – Similar size to ETSU. Looking at the total list for the Bucks, it's eight. Uh, I had let's see, it was Wofford that had like four. Uh, Wofford adds four. BMI adds nine. You know, so there's just I think a Chad lot added eight. Chad added eight. So everybody seems to be on the same page. This is Coach Sanders talking about uh, recruiting virtually because obviously it's a different year, different time, and at least some disadvantages. You usually get to watch them in person. Usually you get a fair number of them in camp, or you get to see them in, in camp. You get to see them physically do something, you know, we, we haven't had any of that. And not only can we not go, but nobody's can go. You know, a lot of times I could call, uh, you know, T. Martin at Tennessee or Jay Graham or a number of my co- friends in coaching and say, hey, have you seen this kid in person? You, you can get their opinion and, and kind of go from there. But there's been none of that. I've watched 
watched a lot of tape. Uh, some of these guys were signing. I probably watched on tape 10, 12 times. I'm sure some of the assistants got tired of hearing me say, uh, hey, pull up so-and-so's tape again. Let's look at it. They've been highly scrutinized on tape. Talked to them on the phone quite a bit. Uh, a lot of Zoom calls trying to find out what kind of people they are, what kind of person they are. And hopefully we can make the right decisions from a character standpoint. Athletically, I, I, I like the class a lot athletically. You just you just hope you know what you're getting as, as a person. If you want to hear a breakdown of what the early signing class meant for the Bucks, episode 197, segment three of Santa's with Sidekick has that, about a 20 or so minute breakdown. But you mentioned Charlie Cole, uh, running back, originally committed to Army. Timmy Dorsey, defensive lineman from last chance, you officially Laney College. And you did mention Austin Lewis, defensive line. There were three transfers that started the classes this semester. We knew a bit about them in December, but couldn't talk about them because of NCAA rules. Lewis, hulking, 6'6", 270. Coach Sanders is going to talk about him here in a second, but uh, local and personal connections kind of bring him back home. Originally a DN, added some mass and played some D-tackle as well. Played in 34 games in three years there. Made nine starts. Freshman All-American by the Football Writers Association of America in 2018. 24 tackles, six and a half tackles for loss, and three and a half sacks. And Coach Sanders had some breakdowns of Austin. Austin uh, Lewis brings size. You know, you're looking at a guy that's around 6'6", somewhere around 260 pounds. He's a little heavier than that right now, but I think that's probably what he would like to play at. Has good athleticism, has good strength, and has played football, so he brings some maturity to the to the table. Anytime you take that size, the, the intelligence, the desire, the maturity – uh, there's no reason to think they can't have a big contribution for us. And it's nice when you have local guys that can contribute. That's, uh, as I've always said, I, we'll go wherever we got to go to get what we need. But if we can get what we need close by, that helps. It, it's a good thing when they miss class and you call their mama and their mama will come over here and get on them. And we're not the ones that's always having to do it. So it, it's nice to have local guys. Then there's Ross. I'm catching up to you here after your through a couple of the individuals. Defensive tackle, 6'2", 265, three years at ODU, kind of improving each season after he redshirted. Has had some trouble staying on the field. That's the one thing with 25 games played in three years and only five games his senior year of high school due to injury. There's certainly some concern there. But when he was on the field, he was a stunt. 29 tackles, 9.5 tackles for loss, and and 3.5 sacks last year. Um, Each number is top two on the team in terms of the tackles for loss and sacks. will be interesting to see if he factors into the Buck plans up front in a couple of weeks. Uh, ODU, you mentioned, did not play football in the fall. Kind of the caveat for Ross outside of injuries, ODU is 1-11 and 0-8 in Conference USA, so I'm not sure the competition that there was up front for playing time, but it certainly looks like he can produce at a very high level when he's on the field. I mean, that, that, that's the one th- The couple of transfers ETSU has gotten before, guys have played sparingly, right? Just a couple of stats, especially on the defensive side of the ball, just a couple of stats. They've gotten, a, obviously, Ari Warts was an offensive guy that had had some numbers and a lot of catches in his day. But for the most part, the defensive guys, we would look them up and, you know, a couple snaps here, maybe one tackle during the season, maybe nine career tackles. I mean, you look at Rock, I mean, he's got some solid numbers, you know, and was expected and is expected, I think, once he gets in there and Billy Taylor's able to get him sort of caught up. The other thing is, I, I don't know enough about Old Dominion to know, you know, was it a 4-3? Was it a 3-4? Was it a heads-up? Are you shady? All the things that once you get, but I expect at some point in time in the fall that you could see Lewis, Ross in the starting lineup. I don't know about Timmy yet, but I think you would. I think you can see 
it wouldn't shock me if Lewis and Ross isn't starters for ETSU for the main reason because they have played FBS games and made plays at FBS level. And I think that's important to note. Yeah, and Coach Sanders talked about needing experience up front, and it certainly seems like the Hawks have gotten that. You can never have enough, speaking about front, offensive linemen, ETSU loading up on them kind of habitually during each signing period. Joe Schreiber, their one transfer product, and whenever you hear about someone that's coming over from North Dakota State, obviously something to get excited about. Schreiber, good enough out of high school, Eden Prairie up in Minnesota is where he went. I can tell you just from being up there, it's a big school dynasty in the area. I know Minnesota football isn't exactly what it is in high school in terms of down in this area, but um, a powerhouse program um, to get the attention of the Bison, obviously, was very good. Didn't stick around, played just one game in two years before transferring to Iowa Western Community College. Never played there because their season was pushed back to spring, and here he is. Great size at what was a center position. I don't know if the Bucks will keep him at center, but 6'3", 285. Um, kind of interesting to see where they place him because, uh, you know, Randy Sanders loves his offensive linemen, and again, you can never have too many. Uh, he got the cup of coffee in Target Field, the one game they played at uh, the Twins Park. So, found it interesting. Of course, we have a, a connection up there with Keith Brake, a longtime Buccaneer Sports Network employee, now uh, does the sidelines and uh, women's basketball, baseball, North Dakota State. So, made a quick phone call and said uh, he thought he knew, but he, he contacted one of the coaches, got back to him and said, great kid. Basically, he was the backup. And then when he fell to third on the depth chart and knew he wasn't going to play, then he wanted to go somewhere and play. So, he went to Iowa Wesleyan. He was able to graduate, um, and they didn't play in the fall. That's another thing. Again, Timmy Dorsey didn't play in the fall, so he could play right away. Joe Schwaber didn't play in the fall. Um, Juwan Ross didn't play in the fall. So all those guys can play. The, the thing for me that I thought was funny from Keith, and it's a true statement, he was like, you know, I would like to think that our third center at North Dakota State would probably be pretty good in the Southern Conference. And venture degree, and yes, he was Ouch, brought in to be a center. Sure, you know. <laughs> I, I, I agreed, though. I mean, you know, if, if he was good enough to get on the field for uh, a game, and it was a few plays. It wasn't like he started, but he got on the field for a few plays at North Dakota He's State. He's the area. In Prairie's about 20 minutes away from Target Field, so it made sense. Yeah, I mean, but if you were the true backup, the number two at the power, I would like to think if ETSU's glaring weakness, I think, this year, because, and, and the weakness really in the sense that they were going to have to move, and they still may move, depending on how this goes, depending on how Schreiber picks up the system, you know, all the things that Randy Sanders wants his center to do. Tavon Matthews right now has been t- uh, snapping the first team, but he's been a guard. They want him to play guard. So I think Schreiber was brought in to start. Now, will he start in the spring? Will they ease him in? This is another thing. The, the offensive line, I think, is starting to get good depth. Is it a situation in the spring where you're trying to figure out your falls so maybe – you know, he does play in a few games. Maybe he doesn't play in a few games. Maybe he does play guard in a few games. And they try to figure out what combination moving forward in the fall. I'm curious to see this season, and we'll talk about this later when we start previewing the season, but I'm curious of what scenarios are going to be. Is it going to be try to find five offensive linemen, play them 85% of the snaps, and expect them to turn around and play again in the fall? Or is it let's get some guys in here, let's get some experience, let's use this as a true, like, build towards fall and a full season next year. But at Schweiber, I I think at some point in time, he was originally brought in as a center. I think they would love to keep him at center so that you can keep, again, Shorts and Matthews at the guards. And then at the tackles, they've been rotating a few guys in. I've seen Setsikorn. I've seen Brad Norman. I've also seen Blake Austin, who's a local kid. So I I like the depth of this team. They've got seven or eight guys I think they feel comfortable with, where last year I think it was like they had five and maybe one other. And so I think they're feeling pretty good about the offensive line and the depth that's starting to build. I think you're spot on. I mean, it's going to be a quick turnaround from April 
or if the Bucks make a run, you know, may, I mean, that'd be great, to August when you're back in camp and then September when you're playing games again. And think about how long it's been since Joe Schreiber has played extensively or more than a couple plays even in a game. I mean, you do the math backwards, and you're at Iowa Western for 2020. There's no football, and then 2019, 2018, so 2017 in high school. So it would be a lot to arrive at a new place, and within a month of being there, stepping right into a starter's role. But that being said, why not? You know, this is a year that counts. There's no doubt about that. But it's not your traditional year. It's not the traditional timing is this a good chance to just see what everyone has, not overexert anyone, make sure that you're healthy for 2021 fall? It's a very good point, and yeah, we will talk more about that. So those are the transfers. Again, we talked about Timmy Dorsey and Charlie Cole on uh, the show about, I don't know, what was it, six, seven, eight weeks ago. We usually do a breakdown of what the previous signing day classes have done for ETSU on their roster the following year. We can't do that right now because we haven't had any football since the 2020 signing day class last year around this time. We talked about the transfers. The freshman, defensive back Zion Alexander out of Norcross High School, Norcross, Georgia. Great name. Played wide receiver, too, uh, which you love for the hands. As a defensive back, returned kicks, ran some jet sweeps. They used him a lot of, in a lot of different ways. His brother, Trey Leslie, played football at Western Kentucky. He's kind of a speedster that also ran track, and ETSU is looking to um, have that depth in defensive back because I think you and me would have identified that as an area that the Bucks were – Still strong in, but did lose some pieces last year. Yeah, I, I think they still got a few guys to go. And, you know, Karan DeLentz has played a lot of snaps. Obviously, Ty Robinson's played a lot of snaps. But, you know, you lose Jeremy Lewis. You lose Artavius Smith. Uh, even moving back to the previous year, you lose Dominique Williams, Tyus Tucker, and you go down the list. So I think that's an area that needed to be addressed. And I think, you know, he'll, he'll be given a shot to play in the fall. I think they have not been afraid, just like Ron DeLance, um got in a little bit as a freshman. Next thing you know, he's a starting nickelback. So, uh, you know, they've proven Randy Sanders, Billy Taylor, if you can play, they'll figure it out. But certainly I think besides that and wide receiver, certainly areas they need to address. Linebacker Jacoby Leatherwood. State best name. State, definitely the best name in this class, if not on the entire team. He's the one we know the least about. Here's what I did find out, at least looking at some of his tape and seeing the different offers that he had. Uh, 20 of them is what I counted. Liberty, Austin Peay, Georgia State, Western Kentucky, Toledo, some of the names that he had offers from chose ETSU. Looked like an ultra-athletic, fast linebacker. Now, is he going to, at 6'1 and 215, I believe he was listed at 6'1 215, going to be able to play linebacker at that size in the Southern Conference? Maybe. I would say doubtful, um, but explosive, has a fast first step and can really get into the backfield. Um, a lot of what I saw was on running plays. Now, of course, they run more in high school anyway, so maybe that's why that's all that's all that's on film. But um, explosive and really has that acceleration and can just run by pretty much anybody that's trying to block him on the line and make plays in the backfield. Again, how much of that is a product of his size? And will he be that size come game day? I, I would probably doubt it. Seems a little bit more like a project to me just in terms of trying to bulk him up and figure out what position he's going to play. Well, the only thing I'll say is for Billy Taylor, he wants he wants lateral movement, and when, mainly for a lot of reasons, but because you got the three backs system from three schools, and then you got a couple schools that chunk it around left and right. So, I think because that, he has been known to have uh, bigger outside linebackers and some smaller inside linebackers. It's been sort of the opposite. I think 
you think of inside linebackers, I think you think 235, 240, something like that. Outside linebackers, you think maybe they need to be like 215 or something. But then you look at, you know, like Bockerith and uh, uh, Jalen Porter and some of those guys' size, and they're bigger. And you look at Zach Yancey, who's played on the inside. You look at Donovan Manuel, who started last year. Those guys are around the 210 to 220 range. So I just think, you know, with Billy Taylor, it just seems like because of lateral movement and stuff, there's just not a lot of I-formation downhill running at you or single-back downhill running. It's more, you know, even Chat, who tends to be a little bit more pro style where it's just multiple like ETSU, West Carolina's multiple. There's a lot of zone and cutback. So I think he's real big on lateral movement and the film, going back to what you were talking about, the thing that I noticed on the film, and I can see why Billy Taylor immediately recruited him, because the first, like, seven clips were him going to the sideline to make a play. And I think that is probably more than anything what Billy Taylor was looking at when he was looking at Leatherwood. And the truth is, even Dylan Weigel's a little bit undersized, yeah. but toughness. The question is, will Leatherwood have Donovan Manuel's toughness? Will he have Dylan Weigel's toughness? You know, Jared Folks is going to be a factor in there for the next – Eight years, I guess, ten years. I don't know when he's leaving. But you look at all those guys. And Folks was actually one of the bigger linebackers he's had in the middle, probably 230-ish, give or take. So I think it's important to note that Leatherwood's foot speed and lateral speed and a sure tackler, I I know that. Can he bring him down on the first hit? Is he going for the big hit? Is he wrapping up? These are all things I've asked Billy Taylor about just because he's been here so long that I know for sure when I when I watch that tape, I, I can immediately say I know exactly why he recruited him. And to me, it was the lateral movement is what got him number one, the foot speed. Yeah, and you know, I say this about the, the weights, you know, 215, 6'1", 215, and then you look at the rest of ETSU's linebackers, and, you know, Donovan Banning, 6'1", less than 200. He's so, bigger than that now, though. For sure. Um, even Blake Bockreth, you know, 6'6", 230 is what he's listed at. And, um, you know, Jared Folks, 6'1", 230. So, Leatherwood really isn't that far off of some of the guys that ETSU has on the roster and with some of those offers and the pedigree that he has, you know, and if Billy Taylor is all right putting a guy of that size in there, which he appears to be, then perhaps Leatherwood could get better. It, 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 again, it's interesting. If you go look at everybody else's probably inside, outside linebacker weight split, I think it's almost the opposite if you go to a lot of places for whatever reason. And it's been that way since I can remember, um, you know, and I, if I could have Matt Wilgham on to talk about, because he played with probably three or four of the best linebackers we ever had, and Marlon Hankerson and Derek Fudge and the, the dream, Raheem Malamin and all those guys. And so, I mean, it, it's always been sort of that way, and it's very odd to me, and it has been, but I've just seen Billy Taylor forever. So I think Leatherwood, the, the foot speed, the lateral speed, and then to be honest, you have to be tough. I mean, Zach Yancey was tough. We know what Dylan Weigel brought to the table. Donovan Manuel showed flashes last year. For me, it's, okay, foot speed and toughness. And if you, you can get away with 210, 220, great. You know, then he will. If you need, if he can't, then he will have to bulk up and play. Or he's going to have to figure out how to play on the outside. But just watching his tape and not knowing anything else with reading coverages, <coughs> excuse me, and doing all that stuff, I would assume he's pegged to be a middle guy. Just a guess. You mentioned wide receiver Adriel Clark out of Raven County High School. 6'4", 200 pounds, an area of need for ETSU. Habitually, right? ETSU wants playmakers. Randy Sanders has harped on the fact that they need playmakers on the outside to go up, make plays, make those tough catches. And Clark is someone that he loves. We're going to hear from him in a moment. But 28 touchdowns, nearly 1,600 yards. Popular target for military academies, Army, Navy, and Air Force. So a good student. offered. 
Coastal Carolina, too, uh, but chose ETSU Allstate as a senior down in Georgia and someone that if you look at those numbers, you have to be excited about. Really good size. You look at it, 6'4", 200 pounds. I'm anxious to truly see him in person to see if he is actually 6'4", 200 pounds. Sometimes those things get exaggerated a little bit, but some of the best uh, uh, resources I have, you know, that have seen him, they, that's probably pretty accurate. Very, very productive. As you mentioned, the touchdowns he's had, just the sheer number of catches he had, not just this year, but in the last couple of years. The way he caught the ball, he caught it so easily in his hands, out from his body, and just the ability to make a tough catch. So, Adriel Clark, someone that ETSU is going to have in and does have those numbers, 6'4", if he is the size that everyone claims. That is a large individual to be playing in the Southern Conference or anywhere at receiver at that size be great for him to come in and contribute right away. Coach did confirm, we didn't hear it in those sound bites, but all the high schoolers signed right now are still in high school, are not eligible to play earliest, but we'll have the chance to see him this come next semester as well. Hey, I thought it was interesting when he talked about, uh, I'm talking about Coach Randy Sanders, that when he was talking about seeing guys on tape, on film, uh, and seeing in person, I liked some of the things he said, but here was the most interesting, that he actually liked to watch some of the athletes that he was recruiting do other sports, whether it was wrestling, whether it was basketball, whether it's see what type of just athleticism athlete do they have. And I thought that was the most telling. It wasn't necessarily like, yes, I need to see. And he did say, yes, I'd love to have him in camp. I'd love to see him go through drills. I'd love to see this. I'd love to see that. I'd love to go watch practice of football. But in the same token, like, you know, I can tell a lot about a guy from watching other sports. And I don't know if Clark plays any more sports. It wasn't listed on his bio, but I'm curious if he'd be interested to see you know, what is his quickness if he plays basketball or if he's a, a baseball guy, you know, can you know, if he's a shortstop, can he move and get to certain places, outfield or track a ball down? So interesting in that, I, I think uh, also a good side note, his stepbrother, Carl Lewis, uh, plays. Carl Lewis? Uh, Lawson, sorry. Oh Carl Lawson. Gosh, oh, you're Carl thinking Lewis. the run. You're talking about oh. the runner. Carl uh, Lawson, three-season Cincinnati Bengals. So, um Interesting to see that uh, you've got not true family, but still got somebody related to him that can talk football and certainly knows what he's what he's doing. But a couple, uh, three seasons with Cincinnati Bengals. The one thing I'll say about his film that I was able to see was the fact that he does seem to have some explosive speed to where, and again, I don't know, sometimes high school, the quality of talent doesn't really match up, but about every single game that they clipped out that he had a play in, he was able to, if he was even with somebody, he left him. Somebody had an angle, he left him. He was able to make a simple catch, make a man miss. It's been a long time since ETSU's had somebody do that. Well, of course he's got explosive speed. He's Carl Lewis's brother. Think about that. I mean, he's explosive and can run by anyone. Carl Lewis. I hate you. Did Coach Sanders get what he wanted in this class? I felt like addressing the defensive line was, was critical, and I felt like we needed to address it with some maturity. You know, we ended up getting two transfers and a junior college captain because I, I think we have some some good young defensive linemen, but many of them are freshmen, true freshmen, sophomores, whatever, and haven't uh, matured as quickly as, I, as you have to mature as a defensive lineman in college football. We needed an experienced offensive lineman, and we found that. Guys that haven't matured as quickly as Coach Sanders would have wanted to on the defensive line, just peeling back the curtain a little bit and telling you that those guys may be something that Coach Sanders ultimately will use and that they will be productive collegiate players, but he saw that if they were going to roll into opening day, kickoff, February 
February 20th, Sanford at William B. Green Jr. Stadium with the defensive linemen that they had on the roster before this early signing period and the February signing period, then they might be in some trouble. So they went out and addressed it. Yeah, I, I think they're clearly, you know, wanting Max Evans to, to progress. They're wanting the Rodney Wrights to progress. And, you know, Cayman Cody's been there the longest. He, he probably has the best shot of getting the, the early start. But they're, you know, I think then you have a new guy, Devin Brantley, who was supposed to be here last year and ends up coming this year. Interesting to see what he can do at 6'2", 215. So there's a lot to be excited about, but sometimes excitement doesn't produce on the field early, right? So it'll be clearly the two things I think everyone's going to be most excited about to pay attention. Number one's going to be quarterback because it's the highest profile position, right? But the second thing I think will be defensive line. The third thing will be who's snapping the football. And then the fourth, maybe you could either go receiver or secondary, and then maybe they're tied for fourth. But number one, everyone wants to think about the quarterback play. Number two is defensive line. And they've certainly addressed that. They're trying to get older. They're trying to get more mature. They're trying to, uh, with the style of, you know, last year they rotated like four guys. I think a lot of what Pinkleton's a guy that's going to get some time this year as well. I think in the fall, if they could rotate a second, maybe even a third group, but certainly a first and a true first and second group, to keep guys more fresh, then I think certainly then ETSU has a shot late in games to sort of hold their, their line, if you will, and be able to, um, you know, stall teams late in the fourth quarter and maybe give the offense a chance to pick up some dubs. ETSU football signing is spectacular. Great guy. There it is. Tom Brady won't that mistake again. Antonio Brown to Tampa. Absolutely not going to happen. Clay Thompson, comeback player of the year. Calling it right now. The season Jim Harbaugh is taking Michigan to the national championship. That's right, fall 2021. You cut that out. The Southern Conference will be playing football in 2020. Are you doubling down in 2021? I'll take that. L-O-L. Steve Ford. You would never. Certainly. You would never, Steve. In the blue and gold. You would never, Steve. Jay Sandoz will fulfill his New Year's resolution 30 pounds down. That's actually your resolution for me. What you just said. Is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Then that guy's not listening to us ever. A simple wrong would have done just fine. Excuses, excuses. Your resolution for me. Blah, blah, blah. Super Bowl props. We always like to do this. Bold predictions. Uh, we also use it to uh, boost the number that we get right because this is not the winner that gets more props right gets one point. It's for every single Yeah, we do. Get, we got to cheat at some point. point. We gotta pump up the stats because we have black cluster to say the best. And we can agree on these two, so this isn't necessarily a head-to-head things, correct? Or do we uh, have to go either way? Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. National anthem. Ooh, here we go. Over/under. Over/under is one fifty-nine. Oh, under. 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 Okay. It is a, a duet this year, I believe. Somebody I've never heard of, and then somebody I have heard of. I didn't write it down though, so I'm gonna go over because I feel like. Back and forth. I feel like they're trying to get an album deal. Play off each other a little bit, and there's like all the things going on. So I'm gonna go over 159. Who wins, and by how much? This is just this is not a prop. I'm starting with a couple of game-related ones. Well, I guess the national anthem is uh, is more of a prop. Oh, it was Eric Church and Jasmine Sullivan. Okay. Eric Church and Jasmine Sullivan, and to your credit. Jasmine Sullivan, who, again, you may not have heard of, but Wild Blackhawks NHL Stadium Series 2016, 1 minute 38 seconds. Hey, boom. So you're sticking with that. Okay. Uh, who wins it by how much, Jay Sandoz? Ugh. It's tough. Tampa. Four. Tampa by four. 35-31. Tampa by three. 
against Tom Brady. I, I've, I've said, well, I predicted the entire so, NFL season almost exactly correct, and I have the Bucs winning in that. So here's the key. Whenever New England is not in the Super Bowl, I always go for the NFC team, no matter what. So I was going to go for whoever the NFC representative was, no matter what. The over-under is 56. You sound like you're taking the over. Uh, yes. I will also take the over. So the only thing we disagree on so far is the anthem time. I'm over 159. You are under 159. Who will be the MVP if it's not Mahomes or Brady? Travis Kelsey is plus 1,000, so Tyreek Hill. Leonard Fournette plus 2,500. Mike Evans plus 2,800. Chris Godwin plus 3,000. Honey Badger plus 3,000. Keeping in mind that defense, three of the last seven years, has won Super Bowl MVP. Also three quarterbacks and then Julian Edelman in Super Bowl 53. You know, I'm actually tempted to go a defensive player for the simple reason of a couple turnovers could be the biggest reason. Oof. I'm going to go Mike Evans because he is just classic one-yard touchdown again and again and again. It's, if he gets like two or three of those, plus racks up, you know, your 80, 90 yards. Now, Antonio Brown is on that list, too. You can pick whoever you want, not just the people that I mentioned, but the odds get worse from that. Antonio Brown sounds like he's going to play, practiced fully yesterday. Do you want to fall into that? Uh, do you love Antonio Brown in bold predictions, you know? I do love Antonio Brown in bold <laughs> predictions. Will he catch three, uh, you know what? Is he still at an online college? That's what I'm wondering. Prediction from last year. That's fine. That's fine. I, I'm going to go Antonio Brown. Antonio I was going to go Devin White. You've talked me out of it. Uh, Antonio Brown. Fantastic. Uh, we already talked about the anthem. What is the first score of the game? Now we're getting into some more specialized ones. Antonio Brown. Chiefs touchdown plus 145. Bucks touchdown plus 190. Chiefs field goal plus 400. Buccaneers field goal plus 425. Any other score for either team plus 5,000. I know you love odds. Well, considering I went 35-31, I went for no field goals for Tampa, but I'm going to go field goal for Tampa. Field goal for Tampa. I'm hedging bets here. Field goal Tampa. Covering all your bases. I'm going to go with a touchdown. You know why I'm going field goal? Because Tom Brady has yet to have a touchdown and nine Super Bowls in the first quarter. He only has one field goal. He is due. Touchdown Tampa Bay. Uh, Will The weekend, who is performing at Mm. halftime, and we're going to get political, mention Joe Biden or Donald Trump during the halftime show? Why wouldn't he at any point do that? Yes is plus 5,000, no is minus 1,000. I would have said no, even if I didn't know the odds. I'm going to go with no. I don't, why would the weekend go there? I'm not quite sure. The country is divided now. Well, he's already said he's toning down the act. That was part of the deal, him getting the act. Yeah. He had to tone down some of the uh, the violence and blood and everything else he's done in his videos, which I was like, I don't know how he's going to try to do that live. But sure, I get it. What will Andy Reid's mask design be? Chiefs branded, minus 2,000. Single color, plus 350. My favorite, Hawaiian theme, plus 700. Very famous pictures out there of Andy Reid in a Hawaiian shirt. One color. Uh, I'm going to go with Hawaiian theme just because it would be so much fun. You're going with simple color. All right. Which coach's nostrils will be first oh, to appear during is, the game? I heard this was a thing. Bruce that Arians is, minus 200, Andy Reid plus 150. Uh, does Randy wear a mask with a shield or does he just wear the shield? Well, Reid has stopped wearing the shield from what I remember. Mm, so he's gone to the mask. Now he's gone to the I'm going Bruce, though. I'm going Arians. with Bruce also, yeah, yeah no question. Uh, what color will Bruce Arians' cabbie hat be? Red, minus 125. White, plus 150. Gray, plus 175. Black, plus 500. Ooh, that's a good one. I think black is a classy look, so is white. This is a classy See, I was going, I'm going to go off-brand. I'm going to go gray. You're going to go gray? Yeah, off-brand. Do you know if they're wearing white or red? We do not. I don't even know. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, well, actually, I think we do. We should know that. 
Well, they have a designated home team, so that would normally tell you what. They have announced it. I just have no idea. Uh, What color, and this is the final one, always our favorite, what color will the liquid that is dumped on the game-winning coach be in post-game? Orange, plus 160. Red, plus 165. Lime green, yellow, whatever you want to say, plus 330. Clear or water is plus 650. Blue, plus 800. Purple, plus 1300. And I'll give you the last 20 results, Chase Sandoz. Three times yellow, four times nothing. Purple twice, clear four in a row from Super Bowl 39 to 42. The fix was in, but never outside of that. Orange five times, all in the last 11 years, and blue twice. If you ever wanted a full breakdown of liquid during the Super I Bowl, enjoy that. Got it. I enjoy that, but I'm going to go with uh, orange just for the simple reason I like orange. It's, it's my favorite. I'm going off the board, and I'm going with none. No liquid whatsoever. By the way, the Bucks are wearing the white unis. So your white hat, white unis, the white unis, white hat, look at you. My pick for uh, Bruce Arians, Gabby Hatton. I can't wait for Antonio MVP Brown. There weren't a lot of, like, crazy ones this year. I think we had, now the other part is I'm going to be traveling back from Furman, so I wouldn't be able to sit there and tally during the Super Bowl to keep track of everything, so I had to do stuff that was relatively simple. But Coach's nostrils first during the game is my favorite of these. Well, the good news is is uh, usually they post those results somewhere, too, so if you take them. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's I mean, unless you want me, do you want me to do the official time of the uh, anthem, or are you going to do it? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be there. I know, I'll do it for you. Yeah, yeah. It's under. I, I can try I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's under. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm sure you will say <laughs> All right, well, we'll recap this weekend. A lot of basketball to talk about. One men's game, two women's Hurry. basketball games. We'll talk a little bit of our bowl prediction recap on Monday or Tuesday edition. Stand up, sidekick. Back in your Network.